This morning's reading is Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Jesus was praying one day, Luke tells us, and apparently one of his disciples was watching, because the text says when he had finished, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. We know Jesus then taught them what we traditionally call the Lord's Prayer. The Bible actually gives us many examples of prayer. We find both men and women talking to God, praising him and pleading with him. We see Abraham dialoguing with God back and forth over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. We read Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel where she, she praises God for his holiness and sovereignty. She even prophetically speaks about a coming king. I was just reading Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles, where they're dedicating the temple. Or we think of the early church in Acts, praying for boldness to keep preaching the word even in the face of hostility. Well, here in Philippians, we have an example of how to pray for fellow Christians. Now, Paul gives us several examples of this in his letters to the churches, and these are here for our encouragement and our instruction. You know, sometimes we don't know what to pray. We're like the disciple asking Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. As a point of self-evaluation, if we had your own prayers from this past month written out, what would they reveal? How often are you praying for your brothers and sisters here at this church? And, and what do you actually request of God? As you know, we have a special focus on prayer and fasting this year in the life of our church. Now, that's why we're looking at prayer this morning. Tom will speak to us uh, next week on the role of service and good works in the Christian life, and then he'll follow up with fasting after that. So a mini-series on some of the basic dynamics of the Christian life as we approach Easter. This morning, we're going to the school of prayer with the Apostle Paul. As he was inspired by God, we'll learn what we should pray for one another, and even the emotional posture or the frame of heart that should accompany those prayers. So from this passage, we see that praying for fellow Christians involves, first of all, thanksgiving. That's in verses 3 through 5. Confidence, that's 6 through 8. And then petition, verses 9 through 11. So first, thanksgiving. Remember, Paul is writing from prison. He's in Rome, uh, very likely chained to the soldiers that are guarding him. Now, this is not a pleasant place. Yet his letter to the Philippians is overflowing with joy and affection. 
Uh, you, you see the words joy or rejoice more than a dozen times in the letter. Paul loves these people. Uh, the church in Philippi was the first church founded by Paul in modern day Europe. He, he has history with these folks. They have been loyal to, to him and to the ministry of the gospel from the very start. In fact, he says in chapter 4, verse 15, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So Paul's letter is a kind of thank you note for their financial and material uh, gift to him in support of his ministry. But I don't think we can limit the phrase partnership in the gospel solely to their monetary gift to him. The Philippians are actively engaged, just like Paul, in spreading the message of the gospel, so much so that they're getting pushback. He mentions their opponents in verse 28. He, he says in verse 30 that they're engaged in the same conflict as he is. So if you just think about that for a moment, Paul sits in, in a Roman cell because he's been preaching about Jesus Christ, but there's a group of people 800 miles away who love him dearly. And they are preaching the very same thing. We, we've got your back, Paul. So they, they send Epaphroditus all that way, a member of their church, to give Paul a gift to encourage him while he's there in prison. Epaphroditus almost dies in the process. So just think how your heart would overflow in thanks and affection. For Paul, it spills over into prayer. And that, that just might be a good definition for prayer, particularly Prayer for fellow believers. It's an appeal to God out of affection for people. An appeal to God out of affection for people. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So much to ponder here in terms of application. In the very place where other ancient writers would say, I hope this letter finds you well, I hope you're in good health, Paul says, I thank God for you. Thanksgiving is the proper, humble posture we take before God for his grace. So who can you say has undeniably been a source of spiritual encouragement to you? Have you thanked God for them? Have you told them so? Life is short. We should give the encouragement while we can because really it's, it's, a, it's a way of praising God. It's a way of shining the spotlight on Him for what He has given. And surely one of His best gifts to us are the fellow Christians He's surrounded us with. Just think for a moment where you might have ended up, but you haven't. He's placed you in His church and, and a healthy church at that. He's surrounded you with people that love you, and have spiritual gifts for your growth and maturity in the faith. We should thank God. It's a great gift. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So Paul is fondly looking back in all the years of, of knowing the Philippians. You know, that speaks to the value of long-term relationships with other Christians. You get to see one another grow and change. You get to pass through trials together. There's a certain depth of friendship and affection that forms only through time. That's one reason why, why church hopping, I think, is so harmful, because you never give yourself enough time to, to get to know anybody. But even if you've been here for years, can you say you've spent that time 
well. How close would you say you are to the people in this church? Are you working at it? If not, you're denying yourself a profound joy. When your time is up, you want to be able to look back and thank God for the people of Christ's covenant church. Another way to think about Thanksgiving is to consider its opposite, and that would be complaining. Uh, Paul will later say in the letter, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He also says in chapter 4, verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Again, Paul is sitting in a Roman prison, right? So, but, but he is not in the grip of self-pity. He's not bemoaning his circumstances, talking to himself. No, he's talking to God on behalf of other people. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment in 1651. Highly recommend it to you. Burroughs says, others spend their thoughts on things that disturb and disquiet them. And so they grow more and more discontented. Let me spend my thoughts in thinking what my duty is. What is the duty of my present circumstances which I am in? That, that is a good question. It's a hard question, but it's a good question to ask yourself, especially when you're in the, in the midst of a trial. He also says, when some men and women are complaining so much and always whining, it is a sign that there is an emptiness in their hearts. If their hearts were filled with grace, they would not make such a noise. Well, clearly, Paul is he, he's an example to us. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Though he is suffering, he is taken up with the concerns of his master and his master's people. He mentions Jesus Christ six times in the first 11 verses. He leaves no doubt where his eyes are fixed. Now, surely Christians, they, they pass through significant trials. I'm not saying we should all embrace stoicism or anything like that. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthians about the hard time he had in Asia. <clears throat> he says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul, he's, he's not a navel gazer. He, he's not into this introspective analysis of his problems. In his affliction, he looks to God. He talks to God. And he continues giving himself to serve other people, especially in prayer here in this passage. So there's a difference between suffering while you, you're, you're, you're passing through a legitimately dark season of life. And giving yourself over to it. Those are two different things. The Christian always has reason to rejoice and give thanks. And sometimes the best remedy to get out of a lowly state of mind is to get up and serve someone else as an act of worship. So thank God for the spiritual family he's put you in. And beware of self-pity. Instead, be thankful and pray. Now, Paul is able to pray for the Philippians with such gratitude and joy because he has a particular confidence about them. Prayer for other believers has a certain attitude to it. It's a deep affection that's confident. So let's look at that in verses 6 through 8. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
might sound like at first glance a digression in his flow of thought, but, but it seems to inform how we should pray for each other. When we go to prayer, we're not on shaky ground. We're standing on granite bedrock underneath. Paul believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He believes that salvation belongs to the Lord. He believes Jesus when he said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's talking about his sheep. He's talking about the people that belong to him. And maybe you're you're wondering this morning, I, I don't know if I belong to God or not. Please talk to someone here about that this afternoon. We would love to talk to you about that. It might be just, it could be a very simple question over lunch. How do you know if you belong to God or not? Paul is confident that this coming day is going to be a good one for the Philippians. Because another point that he brings out uh, here, uh, he's always eager to to highlight the end goal, even in mid-thought. It's something he can't help himself. You know, he... It's always before him, the consummation of our salvation when Christ returns. He calls it the day of Jesus Christ. He says it again in verse 10. It's it's a day of reckoning. And and Paul is confident that this is going to be a good one for the Philippians because God is going to complete what he started in them. God has begun a good work and therefore he will complete it. What is this good work? What's well, God's work of salvation? God has saved these people from their sins. He has rescued them from death and judgment by his own grace. And he will bring them safely home. Paul says, I am sure of this. There are some who think the good work refers to the Philippians' partnership in the gospel or, or the, the gift they've given Paul. But notice he says, a good work in you, not through you. And plus, we have what he prays for them in verse 9 through 11, where their growth and godliness culminates in the day of Christ, just like this good work will. And I have to mention chapter 2, 12 and 13. He writes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Same language as verse 6. This good work is, is in you. And there's a connection to our salvation. So the Philippians' spiritual progress and final salvation are assured because God stands behind it. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. It's a deeply personal phrase there. Paul is laying bare his affection for this church. You know, though they are across the Adriatic Sea, he holds them in his heart. They're close. He's saying, I know you belong to God, and it's right for me to feel this way because, as one commentator put it, the love I feel could only be aroused by Christians as genuine as myself. Paul loves the saints in Philippi. He even says, for God is my witness. So he appeals to the only one who can truly see the human heart. He appeals to the one who cannot lie. With him as my witness, I yearn for you all, and no less, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus died for these people. His affection for them is unfathomable. Paul is saying, my love for you is drawn from and modeled after the love of Jesus Christ himself. You know, it just makes me think, do we love each other like that? This is how Paul loves the Philippians. Paul's, he, he, he is confident about the Philippians 
Uh, and, and that confidence is substantive. It's not merely sentimental. It's rooted in Christ, and it's backed up by the public testimony of their lives. He says, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So, you know, imprisonment carried a social stigma. And it would have been really easy for the Philippians to lay low, to, to distance themselves from Paul, but, but they don't do that. They stick with him. And their loyalty to him and to the message that he preaches, even when it means they're going to suffer, is evidence that their faith is legitimate. Now, most people wouldn't refer to imprisonment as a grace, but Paul and the Philippians will gladly suffer for their Lord. It is an honor. It's a grace from God to suffer for God. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So Paul and the Philippians are together in this blessing of suffering for the sake of Jesus. So we see that the basis of Christian assurance is twofold. God will keep us until the very end, and we must persevere. And those two things, they hold together. Paul sees no contradiction here whatsoever. He believes that God will complete the good work he has begun in the Philippians, and yet he still prays that that good work would go forward in their lives. So the one does not negate the other. You might say that the one propels the other. You ever noticed at the, the very end of the Bible, I'm talking the last two sentences, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And then John turns around and prays, Lord, come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Prayer is not futile in view of God's promises. Surely I am coming soon. Definitive promise. John turns right around and prays, come, Lord Jesus. So every genuine believer in Jesus Christ is going to make it across the finish line. God will see to it. But God has also appointed prayer as a means to get us there. That's why we pray for each other, that we'd be ready to stand before God on the day of Jesus Christ. Our ministry to one another in this is critical. Paul says, I yearn for you all. We know Paul wants to see them again face to face, uh, but based on what he prays for them, I think what he's yearning for is their growth in Christ. Later in chapter 4, verse 1, he'll write, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So finally, Paul's gratitude and confidence pours forth in petition for them. In verses 9 through 11, what does he actually ask God for? I see three things. I think they're all connected and they, they build on one another. He prays that they would, number one, grow in love for each other, that they would be able to discern what is best, and thirdly, that they'd be holy. So clearly, the Philippians have already demonstrated a profound love for Christ and for their friend, Paul. Nevertheless, Paul prays that their love would abound more and more. I think he has their love for one another, especially in focus, Uh, because of what he has to say in the rest of the letter, but but certainly their love for each other would grow out of a love for Christ as the foundation 
And this would also affect how they relate to the, to the world as well. So all of these things kind of hang together. As you read what he prays for them in total, one simple observation we can make is that Christians are supposed to grow. They're supposed to change and develop and mature. There ought to be a thirst for it and an aching for it. Paul yearns for the Philippians to grow up into their salvation. He longs for this growth in his own life. In chapter 3, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So in view of such forceful language, you simply can't yawn at this idea of love abounding more and more. I know it hits, a lot of us, it hits our ears like he's saying, be nice. I I pray that you would be nicer, you know, something along those lines. Maybe that's your sum total of what the Christian faith looks like, you know, just be civil and kind and upstanding. Uh, But that reveals a rather shallow understanding of Christian love, I would think. It reveals an experience your love hasn't really been tested. Don't get me wrong, though. You know, a smile and a handshake and a how you doing, boy, that's nothing to disregard. You, you got to start somewhere with, with loving people well. <clears throat> but if you're going to learn how to abound in love, you've, you've got to get a lot closer to people than that. And, and that's one of the reasons we so value care groups at this church. In a care group, you're starting to do life together. You're starting to to see people's lives behind the veil. What do they really value? How do they spend their time? What what does their parenting look like? How does that man speak to his wife? How are they walking out their faith on a day-to-day basis? And and they're learning those things about you as well. There's a mutual sharpening that takes place, and in the end, there's a deep affection and appreciation for one another. Again, if you don't avail yourself to long-term Christian relationships, you're going to miss out. The Christian faith gives value to the individual, but it is not individualistic. We need each other. Do you see how thankful Paul is for the Philippians? We partner in the gospel together. We grow in the faith together. The Christian life is one of rich fellowship with other Christians. Does, Does that mark your life? Is that what your life looks like? This is how we grow. You notice holiness is the end goal here. That we'd be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So if not in care groups, somehow you've got to get close enough to the people here so you can practice actually knowing and loving one another well. Your growth in Christ will be stunted otherwise. Paul writes in chapter 2, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How can you follow that command if you don't even know what their interests are? So we've got to get close enough to figure that out and then, and then point one another to the scriptures and start bearing burdens for one another. And there's everyone's favorite, working through conflict together. If you're going to abound in love, it's inevitable. I remember getting training before going overseas with Campus Crusade. Uh, I had uh, just graduated from college. We were going over there with a team of people, about 10, 
10 folks, some of them we knew, some of them we did not. And so Campus Crusade, ahead of time, kind of put us through some workshops on interpersonal conflict. And I remember thinking, you know, what's up with this? We're Christians. You know, can't we just love each other? You know, why do we need special training on resolving conflict? I was so naive. Turns out, even on the mission field, among fellow missionaries, people tick you off. You get under each other's skin. You've got personality quirks that you didn't even know were there. And you have to see each other every day. So you just got to work through this stuff. I found out that people are, are difficult to work with. I found out I was difficult to work with. So packed in my bag on that flight to Croatia, I had my Fox's Book of Martyrs. I had my Life and Diary of David Brainerd. I had my Bible, of course. But I also was carrying three monsters, three hidden monsters called pride, envy, and rivalry. And they are nasty monsters. They are pretty hard to kill too, very hard to put to death. If I was going to change, I needed supernatural intervention. I needed prayer. I had to go to God. So Paul's prayer for the Philippians that their love would abound, that is not a frilly throwaway phrase. As you keep reading the letter, you see Paul calling this church to unity. He calls out two women by name and pleads with them that they they might agree in the Lord. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then he points them to the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. And did you notice the very first sentence of this letter, Paul does not introduce himself as an apostle. He says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul is a servant to the one who has served him. So the kind of love Paul has in mind here is defined by the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. The one who made himself nothing. He took our sins and shame upon himself and he died in our place. You know, in our day, we're told that true love means supporting and celebrating unrestrained self-fulfillment, not self-sacrifice. To deny your inmost desires, whatever they may be, is seen as harmful, actually. Maybe you've seen the commercial. It's put out by the National Ad Council. Uh, The main catchphrase is, love has no labels. He's got this big, tough dude. He's walking down the street. And he's got the American flag waving in the background and this dramatic music. And uh, I just have to think, you know, they've got, they've got conservatives in the crosshairs here. They're, they're, there's a message they're trying to, to get across. And uh, um, so love has no labels. And, uh, you know, you're supposed to think, yeah, yeah, I want to be like that guy. You know, he's, yeah, I'm patriotic and love has no labels. But you've got you to stop and think back, what does that actually mean? You know, what is he saying? We're told here in the word that our love should abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. To love properly, we need knowledge. We need to be tethered to the scriptures. Otherwise, some of us are going to be misled. We need discernment. We need to be able to separate the good from the bad and be able to distinguish 
the best among the good. Remember that line from Hebrews. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of, of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So in his prayer, Paul is saying love that grows properly will result in purity. Chapter 2, he says the Philippians are to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And if you're tempted to think of holiness as boring, you've got to read the rest of the letter because it is brimming with joy. And actually, if you want to be robbed of happiness and satisfaction, well, just follow the world's definition of love. The world can be very dangerous. Its messages are seductive and deceiving. We need to pray for one another, therefore. And I'm, you know, hear me, I am not trying to create a pile on here. We know the world is dark, no secret there. There's no place to put your nose in the air. We know the world is dark because we know the darkness of our own hearts. So no, we can't retreat from the world. We've got ministry to do. We've got a message that needs to be proclaimed. And so as we go into it, we stay engaged with it, we need to be praying for each other. And we've got work to do right here. Here's a question for you. Who in our church is it hard for you to love? Think about that. Please don't share specifics in your care group this afternoon. Who is it difficult to be thankful for? Remember, Paul said, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Meaning to not be thankful and encouraged by the work of God that you see in the life of another Christian would be very improper. It's really so easy to write people off and and think, you know, they've just got to change. But what about your own capacity to love? Does it trouble you that you find it so difficult to love that person? Try this out. Make yourself pray for them. Harness your heart. Prayer is engaging with God, and over time, the Holy Spirit will start to do some unexpected things. The person you previously despised, you will suddenly find you deeply care for. It's the work of God. Such a turn of events can only be credited to God. You see that in verse 13, actually verse 11. The fruit comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now this this fruit of righteousness, Paul talks about, this is not our righteous standing in Christ. Uh, He's talking about righteous behavior. If you're a believer, your position before God is already secure because of what Jesus has done for you. But here, Paul is talking about the harvest of righteous living that should come forth out of our righteous standing in Christ. So you think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, serving one another, dying to yourself on behalf of other people, following the example of Christ, becoming like Him in His death, Paul writes. So friends, isn't this how you want to finish off your days as the day of Christ approaches? To be filled with the fruit of righteousness, not empty-handed, not hollowed out, but filled, overflowing, abounding more and more. Boy, we've got to pray for one another that this might be the case.
with all thanksgiving and confidence in God. Let's take a moment now to reflect on these things and then I'll pray for us.